house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hey, I have a picture of my butt. I wouldn't take a picture of your butt. By nature, they are saints. I'm gonna be the best damn menopause patient you've ever had. Every single woman I have ever met got something special about her. The gynecologist says there's no two alike. I guess there's no two alike. But when it comes to the women in his own life, I got two daughters. One of them's getting married, and the other one's kind of jealous. Things are a little more complicated. Bad news. Hope you're sitting down. Kate wants a divorce. <gasps> Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast with tense, unspoken history with Michelle Monaghan. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my assassination tour guide daughter, Joe Reed. You really didn't have to travel far in terms of uh, the name on that. I my uh, my cousin Tara played that role so so effectively. Oh, f- I didn't even think of that. Yeah, the rare I didn't even think of that. I was like, what's just way? some weird stuff that happens in this movie? And obviously, there was a feast of options for me to do, and this was the one that least kind of uh, tripped me up on my words. And now I look stupid because no, i'm trying to say that you are tara reed smart. your name is joe reed my mind didn't even go there you're extra smart christopher we've talked about a lot of movies on this podcast famously over famously we've yeah 105 different movies specifically not even we've talked about good movies we've talked about bad movies we've talked about boring movies we've talked about you know, movies that don't seem to exist anymore. This film, I hated more than anything else we've ever covered on this podcast. <laughs> I hated it so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face. An F, the F cinema score that it got was too kind to this movie. I feel okay, like so we the need... F cinema score. I was as I was watching the movie, I was like, okay, this is a bad movie. There's some weird stuff in it. I don't understand an F cinema score. And then the whole last five minutes of the movie happens, which we should maybe uh-huh. like build up some tension for the listeners who haven't seen this movie, and then we just should. like go into it. Like we had a whole two and a half hours to discuss Mother. I think we could have a three and a half hours to discuss the final five minutes of this movie. If I have to speak about this movie for three and a half hours, the blood in my body will have just completely <laughs> the left The blood me. will leave your body. I just, like, will evaporate in my veins. Like, I don't... It'll just... I... It'll be sitting outside of your body in, like, a Cronenberg sack in the chair next to you. Because here's the thing. This movie does not have a reputation for being a good movie. This movie is, you know, Altman's flop in an era that was pretty good for Altman. And it obviously flopped with its Oscar expectations, and it got the F Cinema score, and all of this. Like, it's it's not like I was expecting 
this great movie. I was pretty much, to be candid, I was like, oh, this is probably just going to be boring. Like, at like at worst, it's just going to be dull. That's what I and thought, I was, too. I was sort of prepared for that. And, and it sort of, it, it gives you that, although even from the very, you know, maybe first 15 minutes, it starts to give you these things, and it's just like, oh, I'm more annoyed than bored. Like, I'm, I'm trending more annoyed at this point. And this just gets, like, just worse and worse as it goes on. And the bad things about it just, like, it's like, you know, a snowball rolling downhill, and it just gets, like, accumulates more and more badness. And, and then the end is just the end so is... infuriating slash baffling slash like intelligence insulting like and so like poorly shot maybe intentionally where I the don't know. fuck does this movie get magical realism from at the hour and 53 minute mark like i just i could not fathom it i was so i was like i kept wanting to text you things because i was but i was like no i have to keep this anger pure and fresh for the podcast i cannot let chris know how much i loathe this movie until we talk about it on the podcast i was holding a lot in and it's just it's also the like just the the pure rage of having a movie that is this much nominally about women like it's like the the cast is richard gear and about women. the richard gear playing the most boring man it is saoirse ronan little women clip women the movie right <laughs> women and yet it so there was i after i watched this movie i dipped into the rotten tomato reviews because i needed some catharsis i needed to read some people who are smarter than me and better writers than me really tear this movie a new asshole and i was dismayed to see how many really good film critics liked this movie roger ebert gave it three out of four stars yes he did a.o scott really liked it um Owen Gleiberman, I'm not really the biggest Owen Gleiberman Ugh. guy, but like he really liked it. Like it's <laughs> a 56 what I think about Owen Gleiberman. If the, it's a 56% rotten tomato, so like it's a rotten, but it's not nearly rotten enough. And Ebert sort of like went on about like the how like what a decent character like gear sort of displays Ugh. in this movie and I was like at best, Dr. T is a void at the center of this movie. I don't know at how least. he displays a decent character when he doesn't display a character. It's like a, Richard Gere might as well be wallpaper. And, like, I, I don't want to call this movie a cartoon because, like, Robert Altman no, has done are fun. actual cartoons um, that are fun and great. And this movie is just off its rocker. I don't hate it as much as you do. <sighs> But I'm excited for you to be as angry at something instead of it being me that's angry at a movie we've we're discussing. The Ebert review, and may he rest and he's a was a wonderful, beautiful man. But Ebert really wanted to give this movie credit for having ha- like famously handsome Richard Gere play a gynecologist, and then the movie isn't about him like blazing a path through his female like patients like the fact that he wasn't having sex with all of his patients roger ebert was just like really zigs when you you think it's gonna zag like just like really wanted to give this movie a ton of credit for that and i'm just like 
I'm not sure if that's the the you know the bar sure that we I need want to this clear. movie to zag or zig any more than it already does. I would like a straight line for five minutes. It's it's so uninteresting. It's <laughs> that's very the other un- thing. It's just like it is both like insane and yet like fantastically uninterested in giving us even like one compelling storyline. Yeah, all of it is very boring and, like, disjointed. I do think that there's this element of, like, it, you know, thinking it's going, like, uh, presuming what we think the movie is going to be or what its, like, prurient interests are going to be and not really doing that. Like, to the point where there's a male locker room scene and I was like, oh, this is going to be the movie about the gynecologist that has a dick in it but no female nudity, and it doesn't do that either. But, like, I don't know what Altman was on with this one. I don't either. I It doesn't feel like an Altman movie. Like, you get it's kind the... of this Texas cornucopia of, like, affluent garbage. Not garbage. Like, it's like, it's very much like Texas high society in this kind of what develops into natural realism, but I don't, I mean, maybe this got away from Altman. I don't understand what he's trying to, like, examine in the Altman, like, way of, like, all these characters and, like, smartly observed behavior that, like, you know, reveal larger cultural, you know, ills or whatever. Um this is just it's, it's written by Anne Rapp who is the same writer for Cookie's Fortune which mm-hmm. was the year before this and both of these movies have this sort of aggressive quaintness to it that i think he makes work more often than not in Cookie's Fortune like Cookie's Fortune feels like there's a heightened sort of satire to the the quaintness in Cookie's Fortune where as you know how small townish it sort of is and how you know the ecosystem of this sort of whatever where is where does Cookie's Fortune take place I don't think I've seen Cookie's Fortune or I maybe saw it like once when it first came out in that movie it's Mississippi so that's Mississippi Dr. T is Dallas very very much Dallas and, um, but it all, but, but, but it shares this sort of like kind of ironic remove from the, the way that these communities sort of function. Right. And I think Cookie's Fortune is fine. I think a lot of people liked it a lot better. I think a lot of people were just sort of just because, and I think part of it was because it was Altman sort of like rebounding from, the gingerbread man, which I don't think too many people liked very much. If I can't, it's not I very good. It's also not correct. distinctly Robert Altman in any way. I mean, like, right? Feels like a job, you know, rather than yeah. And so this just feels like a uh, you know an era, a sort of a lost era for Altman that I really feel like uh, with Gosford Park, it becomes such a rebound from this and such a, you know, thank God 
that something as great as Gosford Park came along on the heels of Dr. T and the women to just sort of like, I can't imagine if I had watched Dr. T in 2000, how thankful I would have been when Gosford Park came around. Um, and then he did The Company in 03, and then My Beloved, A Prairie Home Companion, was his final feature film. And may he rest. Legend. He rest. Icon. Yeah. Creator of some of the greatest... I just rewatched Nashville this week, too. And going from Nashville to Dr. T and the Women oh, is... Boy. I mean, it's just not the same filmmaker. It's just not, like... There are aspects of Dr. T and the Women that feel like someone's trying to do a Robert Altman. But yeah. like, I, in one of the rare cases where I just feel completely baffled in trying to figure out how this is the same filmmaker. Um, well, and it's just like, you look at a movie, but like, this was, obviously this is 2000, so it's not one of his 90s movies, but it's coming on the heels of a decade where... The 90s started out so strongly for Altman because of the player and shortcuts. Shortcuts especially being a movie that really showcases, as did Nashville, Altman's gift for giving you these movies with like a dozen characters or more. And everybody, like the whole point of shortcuts is just like there's a billion little stories and like they're all good and they're all really like compelling in one way or another. And then... In Dr. T and the Women, it just fails so spectacularly at, like, really only, like, four four stories, really. it's Yeah, it's, it's, it's Dr. T, his wife, who has a mental breakdown, the woman that he ends up having an affair with, the most boring affair you have ever watched on oh screen. Oh, my God. Um, and his... Uh, two daughters, one of whom is getting married and has a secret lesbian lover. And like Tara Reed's story is barely a story. Tara Reed is sort of a an offshoot of Kate Hudson's story. Like we get the little thing of her giving the the assassination tours around Dallas, but like she doesn't really have an arc so much as she's just like a little snitch. Like that's sort yeah. of her thing. And but that like, being it's... said, she was probably my favorite thing about the movie, and probably the character yeah. who's like so idiosyncratically observed that it does feel like an Altman thing. Like she made sense to me. Everything she was giving me was what I was hope that hoping that the movie would give me. Even though like she doesn't have that much of a story, it's like yeah. that type of character would make so much more sense if there was maybe twice as many characters as yes. what is in this movie and it could actually yes. feel like an Altman movie where he's doing what he does well which is like making this like cornucopia of stories and cornucopia of like experience um whereas the opening like, this scene, movie feels so incredibly small and insignificant the opening scene in this movie really sort of sells you on something that the movie doesn't deliver on where it's this like chaotic scene of like classic overlapping Altman dialogue all in one and take all in one take it's this chaotic waiting room at Dr. T's office and Shelley Long is his you know office manager assistant whatever um head nurse and she's kind of like barely keeping the chaos together there's this like funny little moment where she like passes out aspirin to all of the other nurses in the office and it's just like all these rich old ladies in this like total chaos and i was just like oh okay so like this is going to be like dr t is at the center of this hurricane and we're going to get all these little like offshoot stories with character actresses and whatnot and i'm like cool i'm in and 
Definitely or it not. at least felt a little bit like in the like kind of winking vein of Pret-a-Porter. Right. But the only one of those characters who becomes any kind of anything is Janine Turner, who is barely sketched out as a character. Like, we're supposed to, like, hate her for these, like, very kind of, like, vague reasons. Like, she definitely seems awful. But, like, what is, who is, who does Janine Turner play in this movie, Chris? Like, like, you've seen the movie. Like, I just saw the movie. I couldn't tell you. Like, who is this woman? I don't know. She Is, is she the one that goes through menopause? Yeah. Yeah, she's going through menopause. Sure. But she's like a nightmare. But like, Yes, why? but like all of these, like... Like the old lady trips her and we're supposed to like feel some sort of triumph. And I'm just like, why? What's yeah. happening? What's going on? It's... Uh, the, the, the like reductive characterizations like that where it's like that woman is defined by like being a lot or like going through menopause. Like the, yeah. there's this like, there is this misogynist bent to this movie that I'm like, well, I, oh, that's, I get that yes. like it's just not nailing the tone that it's trying to do, but in not nailing it, it is um, making this movie more problematic than it already is. That's what I was going to say when I brought up the Ebert review, is Ebert's review sort of mentions that at the time there were uh, groups and critics out there who were calling the film misogynist and were calling Altman misogynist for making the film and ebert just sort of like took great pains to talk about what a great filmmaker of women altman has been through his career which yes like yes i don't think altman is a misogynist filmmaker i think this movie does not serve its female characters well and it's mostly about female characters like there the movie is most consists mostly of female characters so when that kind of movie doesn't serve any of its female characters well it's it's not misogynist but it's not great and it's just <laughs> like, like the terms that it kind of reduces them to that's why i think yeah. i was drawn to the tara reed character because it's like she has this like kind of weird quirky thing she's like all up in her sister's business has to like go snitch to her dad that she's a lesbian uh, can we just get past the the plot description yeah that, like, i was gonna say let's movie. move on to the plot description once again we're here to talk about Dr. T and the Women, directed by the great Robert Altman, written by Anne Rapp, starring Richard Gere, Asleep at the Wheel, uh, Helen Hunt, Farrah Fawcett, Laura Dern, Kate Hudson, Tara Reid, Shelley Long, Liv Tyler, Lee Grant shows up, Andy Richter is there for some reason. Film premiered in competition at Venice, then played TIFF and opened wide uh, October 13th of the year 2000. Indeed Joseph. Did. Yeah. Would you like to give us an in-depth 60-second plot description for Dr. T and the Medicine Women? <laughs> yes. Yes, I would. All right. If you are ready, your 60-second uh -huh. plot description starts now. Okay, Richard Gere plays Dr. Travis, a, di a Dallas gynecologist whose patients are seemingly all rich white ladies and whose office doesn't know how to handle appointments, apparently, because the waiting room is a chaotic mess of needy doyens at all time. Uh, Dr. T has a wife played by Farrah Fawcett and two daughters played by Kate Hudson and Tara Reid and a sister-in-law played by Laura Dern, but don't worry about her because this movie certainly doesn't. Uh, one day, while wedding shopping for her daughter at a fancy Dallas mall, Dr. T's wife has a psychiatric break and dances naked in the mall fountain and she ends up institutionalized. 
realize. And like seconds. the next day, Dr. T meets a golf pro played by Helen Hunt, and they begin one of the least convincing courtships the silver screen has ever seen. Meanwhile, Kate Hudson is getting married while carrying on a barely concealed relationship with her maid of honor, played by Liv Tyler, and nosy-ass Tara Reid narks on her to her dad. And Shelley Long also plays the assistant or the head nurse, and she's in love with him, of course, and debases herself for him, and it's gross. A whole lot of nothing happens, and then Kate Hudson's wedding day happens, and she leaves her fiancé for Liv Tyler, and Helen Hunt breaks up with Dr. T, and there's a literal tornado, and it sweeps up his car, and it lands him in, like, the Wizard of fucking Oz. And that's time! I'm gonna stop you there. We will... I want to get into the full miasma of the ending. I need everybody listening to understand, to, like, pull up your little Google Maps and whatever, and find Dallas, Texas on that map. And I need you to see just how far Dallas, Texas is from Mexico. And the idea at the end of this film that this tornado lifts He drives him up, literally into the tornado. Literally into the tornado because Helen Hunt's just broken up with him and, and what does he have to live for? And he drives into this tornado and it picks him up and it's literally like fucking Margaret Hamilton's going to ride her little bicycle past him. It's, it's very like Wizard of level. Oz, but Wizard of Oz is filmed more realistically. <laughs> Well, and Wizard of Oz was also made in the 30s, and, like, this is made in the year 2000. But, like, there's, like, there's like the joke shot that has, like, things blowing towards the window and the windows wiping. It looks like it is, an, um, like, one of those old-school Disney tram rides where, you it know. It looks embarrassing in a film that has absolutely not laid any track work for any kind no. of, like... No, that's the problem, because, like, obviously it's supposed to look like a joke, anything. but, like... This movie does this full hard pivot into, as you mentioned, magical realism. But like you mentioned, to take him all the way to Mexico is utterly. It I I couldn't get over it. I was just like, just so we can have this like white man delivering a baby in Mexico to like prove his worth to society. A true natural like childbirth like, shown on film in graphic detail. Oh, which is fine. You know, that was compelling at least. The beauty like, of childbirth. Holy mackerel. Like, I don't understand. Like, the idea that, like, this movie must end with Dr. T in Mexico, because most of the movie happens in, like, rich white areas of Dallas and whatever. And now it's just like, but, like, it's not like he ever wrangles, his character ever wrangles with, like, his wealth in any real way at all. No. And yet, all of a sudden, now we're going to take this, like, hard pivot to, like, him being of service to this family in Mexico who like needed a doctor and the tornado like deposited him. It's just this movie does not lay any groundwork for any of that. Any of what happens in the last five minutes of this movie. It's so stupid. It's so stupid that like, I was just kind of laughing at what I was witnessing, not just like what is on screen, but the fact that the movie makes this type of very silly leap um oh my god yow um yow indeed yow indeed and like that is exactly how you get yourself an f cinema score because in terms of like cinema score is all about audience expectations being met absolutely was no nobody going into the movie expecting that ending and i don't know how you expect an audience to do anything but that movie but to leave pissed as soon as the there are certain There are certain, as we've talked about uh, as recently as our mother episode, talked about 
how there are certain F Cinema Score movies that are great movies that audiences were just not prepared for. And, you know, Mother is one and Bug is one and, and many movies are like that. There is also this class of F Cinema Score where it's just all, and I, Lucky Numbers was the same year. The Nora Ephron movie, Lucky Numbers, was the same year and also got an F Cinema Score and I think probably is in the same bucket where it's, uh, uniformly unlikable characters played by actors we really want to love and like it's infuriating to watch it and then in this movie's particular case ends things on a note that is so baffling and unsatisfying that you just like i you the audiences just have no choice but it's a sledgehammer to any sense of goodwill you've been built with the audience (laughs) throughout the rest of the movie because the movie already is like trying your fucking patience it's so i was gonna say i don't think this movie really was building up any goodwill to begin with yeah like Like, it's dull the whole time and when it's not completely dull it's gauche and like it's just way off the mark and then it does this wild like swan dive out of like the realm of taste um yeah yeah this is the, the most obvious of F this cinema movie. score I've ever seen. What's that? I think this is the most obvious F cinema score I've ever seen. It's the most like- I've ever agreed with an F cinema score. Absolutely. Um, I feel like the best version of this movie has Richard Gere's character as like a cipher, right? Where like all of these other women are sort of orbiting him and have these like very, very rich and interesting storylines. And he's sort of the cipher in the middle who can't quite make anything of it. And then by the end, he like has an epiphany or something like that and blah, 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 blah. Like that's the good version of this movie. I, I don't love this premise in general, which is these kind of movies, which are like one man has to deal with all the women in his life where it's like nine is like that. Mm-hmm. And Alfie is like that. We talked about Alfie. Um, but like, which is sort of a, you know, inherently sexist premise in and of itself, which is saying like all of these crazy women and the one sane man who has to like make sense of it. And, um, I mean, the version of which this is, movie that I like is that it's he's not some, like, sane man. Like, he needs to have some right. discernible character trait to him whatsoever, other than, like, his complete... Be, is completely being cast asunder by his wife being hospitalized, and it's like he doesn't have the nuclear unit, and so immediately he falls into this very boring affair that's like, the second they meet each other, they have decided they will be fucking... Well, like, my biggest problem with this movie, my biggest problem with this movie is beyond, like, I think there's one or maybe two scenes with him and Farrah Fawcett in the institution Mm -hmm. where the emotion of what's happening in that storyline lands, right? Where she's... She's so far gone that she calls every, him her brother to everybody else in the institution, and he's crestfallen and sad and all that. And, like, that that at the very least feels like a relationship where I can get a grasp on it. But, like, mm-hmm. what is his relationship with Kate Hudson, his oldest daughter? What is his relationship with Tara Reid? What's certainly 
what the fuck is Laura Dern doing in this movie? She has nothing to do. She gets like this one very funny, I think, scene where she's drinking a glass of champagne while she's wearing oven mitts. And like, she has a Coco Peru wig the entire movie, and it's amazing. Laura Dern, for an actress who is usually on one, is fully on one in this movie in a way that the entire movie maybe should be. Yes. But. But also, she, she, but in you're terms right. of where she, she fits into anything. the story. It just puts her in a bunch of ludicrous outfits and hats. and She has no relationship to Gear, who's her brother-in-law. But, like, she had, like, one scene together. And, like, there's barely any kind of a, a connection, much less a story to that. She's, you know, has a couple, like, scenes where, like, she's with Kate Hudson and Tara Reid, her nieces. But, like, what's their relationship? What's what's the relationship between her and her sister? Is she, like, mm-hmm. is she mad that Richard Gere has sort of, like, institutionalized her sister? Like, there's just, she's, there's nothing. She just gives you, like, this character gets nothing. It's, insane. It, it's, yeah. ugh. Is she it felt very so much mad. to me, like, was she added to make this feel more like an Altman movie? Like, we need more characters, yeah. more and more characters. Yeah. And, yeah. But like what what do, do do the fact that Kate Hudson and Tara Reed not seem to give a shit that their mother is institutionalized is that like a character thing about how they're like they're rich and and Yeah, and it basically goes disaffected un, and whatever. Undiscussed whatsoever. Like I there's nothing in this movie feels like real human relationships which is antithetical to what I feel like the Altman thing is. Like in an Altman movie even the smallest relationships feel very real and very, like, lived in and mm-hmm. whatever. And this is the absolute opposite. Nothing in this movie feels genuine. And uh, I do kind of wish that Lee Grant had gotten her own little movie. Like, I was sort of, like, really interested for, like, the half a second, even though fucking the Hestia complex. But that's, like, she's diagnosis Farrah Fawcett with what she calls a Hestia complex, which is essentially, like, she's... Her life is too wealthy and easy, and so she, like, disassociates or something. Whatever, whatever. It's, like, it's gobbledygook. But it's, like, compellingly delivered gobbledygook by an actress who, like, has some real chutzpah. So, like, I was into that one little scene because it seemed intentionally silly, and Mm -hmm. I was on board with that. But, like, again, she just sort of goes away after that. And we are left with, and I'm going to hand the ball off to you for this one, this Richard Gere-Helen Hunt relationship. Oh, boy. That is just an absolute, like, imploding dark star of nothingness. Uh, Yeah, it's a big It's the star of Interstellar. It is the beige turtleneck of affairs on screen. um I mean, it, it's so inevitable that they're going to fuck and then it takes mm-hmm. forever for them to fuck. Um, I felt bad for Helen Hunt that it's like this was her like Oscar yes. follow up year, basically. It was this. We've done this was an her episode on Hit Forward. Year. Like it was just uh, with the exception of uh, What Women Want, which was like a huge hit. And but like at the same time does absolutely nothing for her to the point like the end of the movie is like. I don't know how I feel about it with that character. Um, that movie doesn't serve her character well, but she at least gets to play a character. Sure. Which I think is more than what she gets to do in Dr. T and the Women. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, pay it forward is embarrassing for all involved, but, like, this almost yes. feels like a little bit 
more embarrassing because like yes. it feels a little bit like the way that she's even shot in this like actual seduction scene it's like okay so robert altman watched as good as it gets and said i need helen hunt's side boob again i i just i don't know the, there there the the two moments in this movie where we get that it's female stars naked uh both the Fair Fawcett scene in the fountain, which is sort of filmed from the other side of the fountain. So, like, she's definitely naked, but we sort of have to, like, look through the the water or whatever. We maybe and need then to Helen talk Hunt, about Fair Fawcett in that damn fountain as well. We do. We absolutely do. And then so the Helen Hunt scene, this, like, again, interminable seduction scene where, like, Lyle Lovett won't shut up on the soundtrack. And, like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's just the most, the least interesting, like, like dinner at home in her, like, weird little open plan house. Those houses, remember back in, like, that era where, mm-hmm. like, the bedroom was upstairs. It's like but the there bubble no glass walls. covers You her can see bathroom. all of the upstairs from downstairs. I don't know architecture, but it's, like, it's a whole, it's a style, right? So, like, we are, the camera is downstairs and it's looking upstairs and we're sort of, like, uh like peering in at this point so like she's at a distance but like she's definitely like takes her shirt off and she's like oh i guess they're gonna have sex now after yeah, this like it's like don't they have sex like while the chicken's seduction. in the oven basically you know like, <laughs> yeah while they're yes. waiting for dinner to finish like and this is and after it's so it's it's presented like even I think there's an interesting version of this affair where it's like both of them are kind of deciding, figuring it out, feeling it out, who is actually doing the pursuing, because it feels like neither, maybe it's fault of the screenplay, but it like, it feels like neither of them really pursue it yes. all that much. It's like they, it just kind of She happens. never shows a single iota of interest in him romantically until like two seconds before they have sex. But, like, she never shows an iota of anything before then. Right. Right. And Why, neither does who he. Who is she? She's a, like, she's a golf pro who, like, I, like, uh, I hate it. I hate it. It makes no sense. She, like, sells him golf clubs. Like, half of their scenes are. She's the one who tells them that his wife has been institutionalized. She pulls him out of a locker room. Yes. To do it. Which, tell first of all. That scene is so stupid and made me mad anyway, where she like she pulls him aside and she's like, there's a phone call. It's your wife. First of all, she says it's your wife, which does make it sound like her, his wife's on the phone. And then she goes, no, it's the police. And he. Well, I think she was trying to like tell him more privately is what it was like. You wouldn't pull somebody out of a locker room with like the police are on the phone for you. But like you could well, do it right? By but also his reaction to it is so like weird and placid. Where he's his first, I mean, when somebody says it's the police about your wife, like you, like your wife was know, naked frolicking in a mall fountain. Also, did you, <laughs> the scene where he goes to see her in jail? She's in lockup, um, and there's these two other women in the lockup with her, one of whom fully looks like Celeste Holm in Three Men and a Baby. And there's she's sort of, like, huddled with this other woman, and they're both, like, kind of fancily dressed and whatever. And I, like, deeply needed this movie to, like, take a detour into the lives of these two women, because I was fascinated. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, that would be just, way more just, interesting just than... Just me, apparently. 
anything <laughs> having to do with Academy Award winner uh, Helen Hunt in this film. Okay, we've got to talk about the goddamn fountain. I okay, let's talk about the fountain. Don't think huh. I've watched anything more upsetting in um, quarantine. You know, while we have a global is pandemic Fawcett, going on. It's is Farrah Fair... Fawcett good in this movie? Uh, uh, Farrah Fawcett. I think she's either very good or very bad, and I can't tell. I think that if the movie is better and she gives the same performance, she's good. I don't know. Like, I don't know if the movie really... I can't tell either. Maybe the movie treats her from such a distance... Yeah, and like and never really allows us to really like. That's how it treats almost all of, pretty much all of its characters. Actually, I like, was so surprised this, like, that really like it's in distance. the first ten fifteen minutes that she has this naked yeah. scene because I remember yeah. like that being one of the key publicity things that like Farrah Fawcett's naked in a mall, and I thought that that would be like a like a a, a plot twisty type of situation further into the movie but it, like it happens very early Farrah Fawcett yes. probably has a max of 10 minutes of screen time in this movie leading up to that the way she's sort of behaving while they're at Tiffany and sort of like looking at flatware or whatever um and she's like she's very distracted and she's very sort of like whatever and as I am as I the viewer am trying to parse out what the relationships between the other characters, because it's her and Laura Dern, and then they're joined by Kate Hudson and Tara Reed. And like Tara Reed calls Farrah Fawcett mom, but Kate Hudson doesn't say anything. So I'm like, is Kate Hudson also her daughter? And is Laura Dern like I was initially yeah, are these being like, like, oh, Dern mo- and Fawcett are both ex-wives. Yeah. Right. Like I, I was so I'm trying to figure that out. And then, but meanwhile, Farrah's sort of playing this kind of distracted and disaffected, and she's, you know, spacey, and I'm like, oh, this is all intriguing. And then the fact that the fountain scene happens right after that, it's just sort of like, oh, well, we're just, we're getting to, we're cutting to the chase really quick. It makes me want Uh, to scrub my entire body with hand sanitizer and a Brillo pad. She is frolicking in the spit of children. And yeah. dirty coins and water that has been recycled a million times a day. <laughs> it made I was, my skin I was crawl. texting a friend of mine. I was texting a friend of mine who grew up in Dallas while I was watching the movie because I was just like, you have to like, I was like, have you seen this important work of Dallas cinema? And he's like, yeah, that's the mall we used to go to uh, all the time. And he's like, there's usually turtles in that fountain. <laughs> so in Great. addition to all of that fantastic okay um, so here's the version of the movie i think that like works wait, wait, and whatever it's trying to do or like uh before you know, we what move on though chris well it's the same topic wait, before we move on to that okay but but the specific scene of the fountain that i feel like you're glossing over that we need to make sure our listeners know about as a warning or as like a public service is at the end of that scene the camera pans up into the mall to the sign of the Godiva chocolate shop. It does. Because <laughs> she's naked. <laughs> she's, you know, she went topless and then it's Godiva. And I was like, I hate this <laughs> so, so much. much. It's the most it unwell really, Godiva really commercial you've ever clever. seen. 
it was and it was just like get it like naked lady godiva and i was just like <laughs> fuck you i hate you so much eat my full ass Robert Altman. yeah <laughs> seriously okay but oh, so here's God. what i was gonna say the part of this movie that i feel or like what i wanted from this movie for it to like work with what it was like trying to do and still feel like an altman movie or like the altman movie of this that i want to see maybe i should say i want that movie to never yeah. leave the mall right like no, you have all cool? of these yeah. characters in that mall like that's when i was like okay this could be like he's doing like rich ladies at the mall culture like his like his office could have been at the mall right like he could have had like an that office, would have been like, more magical the... realism that would have made sense right but, like, that would have been, yes. And that would have then at least started to lay some track work for the fact that, like, this movie isn't fully existing in, you know, the natural world or whatever. And, like, I would be cool with that. Because, like, that's, I think that's ultimately what Altman's trying to get at is, like, this sense of sort of wealthy, cloistered Dallas society. But he never really gets there. Mm-mm. Like, not at the bridal shower scene, not at the office scenes. Like, we're supposed to, I think, glean a lot from just the fact of a lot of rich, fancy ladies in the same room. But it never really goes anywhere. No. Or says anything. And it just feels like it's trying to put, like, just, like, check off all of its boxes to the point that, like, Kate Hudson is a cheerleader. Um, yeah. You know, it deals with the Kennedy assassination, all of this, but it's like it doesn't ever gel into something. Well, it doesn't ever devote enough time to any of it to, like, make it land. And it there's not enough of these moments to then make it seem like, oh, all these short little vignettes are this kind of patchwork tapestry. Like it just it do, it doesn't work in either direction, mm-hmm. and then you get these like goddamn cutaways to him and his buddies like hunting, like him and Andy Richter and the guy from Airplane and the other guy, and it's just like a these scenes aren't any more interesting than the other ones, and b I don't care because like i at least want to go back to the actresses i did get you know a full I mean? laugh like, out of one of those scenes those hunting scenes of them together because during one of them and this is like maybe the third time we've seen them hunting or golfing or whatever the fuck one of them's right. like you know what we should do we should do a guy's weekend and i was like what the hell are you doing what now, the hell do you think you're then? doing <laughs> right <laughs> right i guess one of the points in this movie is just sort of this like what do you do when you have this money that, you know, everything you do is essentially leisure activity? But, like, that also seems very sort of halfway thought out with, like, it's the golf of it all where, like, she has a job that essentially they both have jobs where they cater to rich people in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And he sort of has this boutique gynecology practice or whatever for rich ladies and she teaches old rich men how to golf better Mm -hmm. and they both sort of have this i guess like dissatisfaction with their lives but it but i don't like 
is that the point? I kept being like, this movie kept making me be like, I, is this what this movie is about? And then it sort of moves on to a different thing. And I don't know. It's the, we let's talk a little bit about Roger, Robert Altman, because Robert Altman, yes. like famously before his other better films. Yeah. Yeah. Before like the player and shortcuts was like, Basically in director jail for Popeye, like Popeye was a career killer for him. Right. The 80s. Yeah. The 80s was a tough stretch for him. And it's like, okay, whatever. I like Popeye. Um, And it just feels like this is so much more a worthy director jail movie to the point that it feels like having watched this movie now that Gosser Park is a bit something of a miracle that that happened or that he even got to do that movie after this because like this yes this is like clearly this feels like the career killer movie whereas he had another movie that actually was his career killer so dr t is 2000 and then gosford park is 2001 do we think that and they're both different studios this is for artisan uh and we'll get to that in a second because I do want to talk about the the artisan moment in time, which was only like four years. Um, and then Gosford is is of course uh, our beloved focus features. Do we think that Gosford Park was already in the works, and thus any kind of director jail that could have happened from Doctor T and the women was sort of um, well, he's already doing Gosford Park anyway, so like that is already happening and then gosford park is such a success that everybody immediately forgets about dr t and the women and and also he only ever makes two movies after gosford park anyway but still i think it's more that this movie went away faster than it is that like gosford park was just right around the corner because for some reason it doesn't feel like this got you know held against altman in any way Popeye is a much more visible... Yeah, Popeye was a more, like, visible embarrassment. This movie, because it bombed, because it was a smaller distributor, it was easier for people to forget. And also, just, like, this movie, in the year it came out, was, like, a subline to a bunch of other different narratives going on. Like, Helen Hunt's bigger movie was Pay It Forward. Kate Hudson, like, this is her big breakthrough year, but, like, Obviously, almost famous is the story there. Yeah, it's interesting. We've now covered both of the Helen Hunt movies that we could possibly cover from her two thousand uh, flop streak. We, you know, we can't talk about Castaway because that was a nominee, and it would be a real stretch to say that What Women Want had Oscar buzz, uh, despite the Golden Globe nomination. Um, in a similar way that we've covered two of the three. Um, Jude Law 2004 movies that we could possibly talk about. We've mm-hmm. done Alfie and Huckabees, and we could still do Sky Captain at some point. Um, poor Helen Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's I doing just, just bad. Fine. Um, oh, sure. But still. Sure. Getting called Jodie Foster in that Vulture interview. Did you see that? Yes. Amazing. Oh, it's my worst my worst fear. It's one of those things where it's like your head is being like, don't call Helen Hunt Jodie Foster. Don't call Helen Hunt Jodie Foster. And then because of that, you're just like, Jodie. Oh, boy. Helen Hunt was fine. She ended up uh, having other movies. She got another Oscar nomination after this. She did. 
But like you watch, I watch this movie and I feel most bad for her, mostly because it's like she doesn't even get to have fun in this movie. No, no, no. Yeah, and like this is a movie where movies... she gets to sleep with Richard Gere and she doesn't get to have fun. Well, he also is not having any fun in this movie. He, I just like I understand the impetus to cast a Richard Gere in this role, but like he's not this kind of interesting character actor. For like what, like you kind of need somebody who's more like charming but foppish, you know? There's a, like somebody there's who a feels risk. like maybe they're not as self-aware, whereas like Richard Gere always feels very composed and such. There seems to be a resistance in this film on the script level, at the very least, to making Doctor T too much of a cad or a shit mm-hmm. right where we're like we we see definitively that it's kate it's farrah fawcett's character who moves to end the marriage so that he doesn't get blamed for by the audience for like having an affair mm-hmm. we we see him in his sort of you know doctor's office scenes being a, f- a decent doctor or whatever and like there's i think all there's there's a big effort to keeping him a good guy but it's carried out in a way where it's just sort of leeches from him any kind of character bits i think right this movie- like it's so afraid of us like losing losing the audience to this character that like it just makes yes. him as beige as possible Yes, that's exactly because he Thank can't be thorny in any succinctly. way, right? I think he could be. I think if Doctor T is a worse person, this movie is a more interesting movie. Mm-hmm. It you know still might have annoyed me. It still might have been like, oh my god, like I hate this character so much. Why am I watching a movie about him? But at least it's more interesting, and it's more there's more of a story to it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think. I don't know. Richard Gere, especially like leading up to this in the 90s, because obviously this is before Chicago. So there's not really a whole extensive like Oscar conversation to be had about him. But in a movie star conversation is more interesting. Like Oscar, it probably comes down to just Summersby. Shout out to our very old school Summersby episode. But like post Pretty Woman, it's a lot of like basically either cheesecake fully dressed in a suit or like kind of Lothario type of first night things slash I just I'm gonna read to talk you about the first sort night. of Yeah. I'm gonna read you since we did talk about Summersby, I'm gonna read you his filmography from Summersby in ninety three to Chicago in O two. Right. So ninety four, he's the lead in the film Intersection. Do you remember Intersection? Yes, Sharon Stone, yes. Yes, it's Sharon Stone post Basic Instinct when like every Sharon Stone movie was imbued with this sort of um inherent smuttiness kind yes, of. Yes. And she and Richard Gere are married and he's having an affair with Lolita Davidovich. Like it feels like it wasn't an Adrian Line movie, but it could have been an Adrian Line movie. Um and he eventually does an Adrian Line movie when he makes um Unfaithful in O2. 92 
still doing like the sexual thriller thing. He makes final analysis with Kim Basinger and Uma Thurman, a movie I remember watching like on cable and feeling like I was watching something very sort of like lurid and sexy and whatever. And I don't remember a ton about the plot except for he's, I want to say, a shrink and he's having sex with one or more of his patients. Sure. Um, A lot of like Richard Gere therapists. Yes. Yeah. He's in a movie called Mr. Jones in 93, which like I barely remember, but I think it's. He is. uh, He has a mental disorder in that movie, but he falls in love with his therapist. Oh, who is Lena Olin? Yes. That was like definitely the type of like uh, uh, paperback romance, but it's a movie that like my mom would watch the shit out of when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Final analysis was the year before Summer's Beat. My bad. Um, 95, he makes First Night, the um, movie yeah. where he is Lancelot and Julia Ormond is Guinevere and King Arthur is played by Sean Connery. And I never... Wait, maybe I did see it. It was a bomb, though, I'm pretty sure. I don't think right? it was a bomb. I just don't no? think. Okay. It did, like... Amazing. Domestic, it made little over $37 million, And it made a bunch of money uh, overseas. It, it was 125, uh, 127 worldwide. And yeah, it was not well-reviewed. We'll say that. Um, I remember it being sort of the butt of a lot of jokes. This sort of, you know, Richard Gere playing Lancelot that he felt miscast in some way. Um 96, My Beloved Primal Fear, which I was watching uh, a little snippet of yesterday for literally no reason. And the degree of acting talent in this movie that is such, like, beautiful junk in terms of, like, it's like a Law & Order episode put on television. It is absolutely one of the finest ensembles, just, like, absolutely polishing a turd. It's gear... Laura Linney. Hell yeah. Edward Norton, who gets Oscar nominated for it. Alfrey Woodard as the judge. Andre Brower and Maura Tierney as, like, Gear's legal assistants. Francis McDormand at, like, the year before Fargo. No, the year of Fargo. Um, as the, the psychiatrist, John Mahoney. It's just, like, it is wall-to-wall with, like, capital T talent. And it is the most ridiculous slash wonderful like legal stuff like she's laura linney in that movie just goes off on edward norton on the witness stand in a way where like any judge in the world would have had her like thrown in jail at that point just because she's like just going completely off of the mandate of like what a prosecutor is supposed to be doing but it's just perfect i I fucking love that movie. It's so good. Do you know what I would do if someone did that to me? I would kill him. I wouldn't hesitate. No. I would stab him 78 times with a butcher knife. I would chop off his fingers. I would slash his throat open. I would carve numbers into his chest. I would gouge out his eyes. I swear to God. But that's me. Moving on. He makes The Jackal in 97 with Bruce Willis, which is a remake of a French thriller the day of the jackal and i remember watching it and i remember very few things about it one of which is that jack black is in it playing um 
a hacker, an accomplice of some kind. And the other is that like the plot hinges on them doing this like very quick um, paint stripping job on a car where a car is a getaway car. And then they pull into a lot and then they like power wash the like coat of paint off of it. So it becomes a different color. That's all I remember about the Jekyll. He's the bad guy in that, I'm pretty sure. It's Willis is the good guy, and Gear is the bad guy. Because he has, like, dyed blonde hair, and he's maybe Euro trash. He also makes, in 97, a film called Red Corner, directed by John Avnet, with him and by Ling. And it is That set... was a bomb, right? No. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that that's right. This is set in China. He's a... He's maybe an attorney in this as well i don't know yeah this one uh yeah did not do very well at all and then 98 wait sorry 99 then runaway bride the big pretty woman reunion it's gary marshall and richard Gere and julia roberts and the band's all back together and i'm sure hector elizondo is in it as well i've still never seen it it's fine i just remember the poster which is Julia Roberts in her wedding dress, like, putting on a pair of tennis shoes because she's getting ready to, to run. She's a runaway bride. Um, it also had the Dixie Chicks song, Ready to Run, of course. Sorry, the Chicks. Which uh, gives, like, the movie an instant boost of, like... the That movie, like, kind of thrives on a song that's not even original to it. The, the rest of the movie is so deeply fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then 2000, it's Dr. Teen the Women, but also, uh, don't forget... Autumn in New York is this year, which yes, I remember watching in like this sort of co-ed group where like the girls were all sort of like swooning over it and the boys were like making fun of the girls for swooning over it. And I'm just there trying to watch Window and a Rider movie <laughs> and it's not a good movie directed by Joan Chen, which I always find is very interesting um twin peaks his own joan chen um it's not a good movie i wanted it to i wanted to find something in it that like i the you know the cinephile of our group was going to you know find something worthwhile in autumn in new york and i just could not it is 2000 to like 2004 is like the absolute killer of like romantic dramas of that era yeah. because like i'm also thinking wasn't sweet november i was just about to say sweet november yeah, i always like there's those a lot movies. of them that were just really bad yeah. someone's always dying someone's always dying yes in autumn in new york winona Ryder is the one who's dying and uh, i think sweet november die Charles ironically Theron's dying doesn't richard gear die at the end of autumn in new york like in an Instead, ironic way like the twist oh it's stupid maybe I could be wrong. I feel like one of those movies. I, I, that's, but that's the like the fault in our stars thing, right? Where you think one of them's gonna die, but it's really the other the one, one does. Um, yeah, Doctor T and the Women, Autumn in New York, a terrible year for Richard Gere. Doesn't make anything in two thousand one, and then two thousand two is the big comeback where a complete platonic ideal trio of movies. Just yes. like it is the perfect. Like, yep. mathematically correct triangle of movies that, like, you want every movie star to emulate, like, this subsection of movies. The fun, junky, crowd-pleaser horror movie in The Mothman Prophecies reunites him and Laura Linney after, of course, Primal Fear. Um, very stupid, unfa- very fun. 
Very stupid, very fun. Unfaithful, the Adrian Line movie, movie I was talking about, is... Deeply underrated. Deeply underrated. He is... Great. The, he's fantastic. He's the star, but absolutely allows himself to get outshone by Diane Lane. And I think it's... I don't... I watched that movie, and I don't see him, like trying to wrest that movie from her and i'm always so grateful for that because he very well could have he very well could have been like i had just made dr t and the women in autumn in new york i fucking need this <laughs> i think it's his best he, performance yeah he's really good he's also, really good he he's better than he deeply, is in chicago deeply sexy olivier martinez also in that movie uh it's a good one and yes in chicago which i just rewatched recently it's so good i know that movie had its detractors at the moment i know sometimes it's sort of looked upon with a little bit of a cockeye because of we sort of we look down on renee zellweger's performance in that movie people look down on a lot of things in that movie they look down on renee zellweger they even kind of are like whatever to captain zeta jones's unimpeachable win they like it's like typical award the awards campaign for that movie made it seem like it's fartier than it actually is like it's a fantastic movie it's yeah. really really incredible good. crowd glazer i will say gears not maybe not my least favorite part of it because i don't know if i have a least favorite part of chicago but like he's pretty down the list in terms of like the things that i love yeah. about chicago I remember even at the time, people being like, Richard Gere snubbed. I was like, but, like, uh, he, yeah. I mean, like, I don't walk away from that movie talking about Richard Gere. No, I don't. And I, 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 I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think uh, I do either. Yeah. I mean, would have been good if he was nominated. Certainly. I've still never seen The Quiet American, so I can't speak to whether he deserved the nomination over Michael Caine that year. But, you know. It's, it's Renee and, and Catherine. That's Catherine. Catherine. With an asterisk of Queen Latifah. Oh, well, that was the other thing, watching that movie again. I was just like, Queen Latifah's one big number, When You're Good to Mama, is so fucking killer. It also comes just... at exactly the moment that you think Chicago is going to like downshift and like start being a movie and it just punches yeah. the energy back up again so yeah. it's like it has a huge like cumulative effect on the pacing of that movie i think yeah i feel like her and the rest of the movie fine you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that's the it's the typical sort of thing where it's just like singing performing a plus 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 and acting in the other scenes where you're not singing and performing C plus, right? But you come like you come to the show for when you're good to mama. You don't come to the show for like the interstitial scenes with her and Roxy, right? So like you get what you paid for, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, so there's gear. There's your gear sort of, you know, most of the nineties and whatever. Two thousand Richard Gear is a bottoming out as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and this movie, Dr. T and the Women, really is indicative of that, I would say. Unfortunately. Blech. Unfortunately. Super unfortunately. Yeah. 
but uh, we you were you were talking about Altman, and I think I, I, uh, I no, 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 no. I mean, I think the or... because we we've we've kind of covered similar territory that we would cover here for when we did Pret a Porter. Is a lot more yeah. fun of an Altman to talk about than this is because, like, this just yes. doesn't feel like a, a Robert Altman movie. And, like, I say that, like, trying to also be clear that, like, he is a filmmaker and his filmmaking style isn't a monolith or isn't even as reductive as, like, in terms of style that I think people kind of paint Altman into a box with, with, like, overlapping dialogue or, like, multiple stories, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's other... Parts of yeah. Altman too that I love, like things like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, He's directed so many movies. I uh, and like a lot of I them really... were non-entities, right? Especially in the eighties, right. post Popeye. But even in the seventies, there's a lot of movies that are like the legendary ones. There's Mash and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville and all this sort of stuff. And then there's a lot of stuff that, like, I don't know whether they were, like, a thing then, and we just don't remember it very much now. Like, I don't, like, what is California in TV split? a ton. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, like, his, his output is so intimidating, which is always why whenever I, because there's a lot of Altman I still need to see. And whenever I'm like, oh, I, I should make a project of this. And then I go and I look and I'm just like, there's so many movies. There's yeah. just like dozens and dozens I of would films. be willing to bet because some of these are just like you don't even know what they are. Um, yeah. I bet some of these are probably really hard to get a hold of or just flat out not available. I mean, there's yeah. some things that are even like buried below the surface that I think if people think of them, they don't even like remember that they're a Robert Altman movie. Like come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Which is so good. That's why Cher always, you know, talks about Altman as being such a pivotal figure mm-hmm. in her life. Didn't he also direct the stage version? Uh, possibly. That? I don't recall I if that is the case. Amazing career. Thank God Gosford Park came around when it did. I still need we to de- rewatch Gosford Park. We need to do um, Prairie Home Companion at some point, just so I can... Just holler at the top of my lungs <laughs> about all the things about that, that movie that should have gotten an Oscar nomination. And, you feel the urgency to do so now because we're talking about a movie we hate and we spent a lot of the summer yeah, talking I, about Yeah, I almost feel like I need like. to atone. I know, I need to atone for... I, I don't like having these, like, angry, f- you know, fury feelings about a Robert Altman movie, my God. Boy. Can you can you talk about the, the Lyle Lovett score? this movie movies a score by lyle lovett it sounds like a score by lyle lovett um (laughs) because his name was dr travis like to amuse myself during this very boring movie i would at random moments uh imagine him played by randy travis randy travis (laughs) (laughs) helen hunt having an affair with randy travis now that will keep my interest um honestly yes true um, so uh, I did mention that I wanted to talk about artists and entertainment because when this movie started, I watched it on uh, on Tubi last night. Which honestly, I'm always a little skeptical of these like free movie services that you know are on your streaming platforms or whatever. And this one, Tubi's thing is you have to watch it with commercials. But like, yeah, that's how really I watched t- it on Amazon. Not IMDb TV. Right. 
I will say the experience of watching it on Tubi, like the commercials were not too over, like there weren't too many of them. The, they didn't have, I don't know. I feel like they, they came into the movie at parts where I was just like, I didn't feel like I was getting jarred out of the movie or anything like that. I was like, as for a, you know, an imperfect streaming system i was fine with it anyway. i forget what i had to watch on voodoo one time where the commercials that were it, i think maybe it was bonfire of the vanities um the commercials just fully would come in in the middle of someone's dialogue i don't love voodoo for that very reason i've had experiences watching voodoo where it just feels annoying and it feels i don't know i i i for whatever reason prefer to be anyway the very first thing you see when you hit play is the uh, title screen for Artisan Entertainment, which we've talked before up, about how production studio sort of title cards have this uh, Pavlovian, elicits this Pavlovian response in us, sort of gives us this sense memory. Obviously, focus features being the number one of those. I also definitely feel that way about Paramount Vantage. Whenever I see the little Paramount Vantage um, sliding metal. Yeah, the little label maker logo. I'm always like, oh, I'm about to see No Country for Old Men. So, Artisan Entertainment, of course. What's the movie? When you see the Artisan Entertainment logo, what is the movie you think you're about to see? Uh, Blair Witch Project. Absolutely. Absolutely uh-huh. the Blair Witch Project. Every single time I see that, like my blood starts to run a little bit cold. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, God, we're about to see it again. And so it was weird to like go into a movie that could not be any, you know, any less similar to the Blair Witch Project. So Artisan begins... It, it, it had a previous incarnation as live entertainment, but its very first movie as Artisan Entertainment is Darren Aronofsky's Pie in 1998. Mm-hmm. Another movie like the Blair Witch Project, which is so... Obviously both are in black and white. Um, so low-budget yet effective with its low budgetness that still in that era like there's something about artisan that like i think they dealt with a lot of these like very low budget movies when it was the time of you know you could still have a movie like pie that's shot for i don't know ten thousand dollars or something like absurd um and be released widely in movie theaters yeah that's like kind of what i think of when i think of artisan though that's not all of the movies that they were releasing it's a very specific niche of low budget indies like they Mm -hmm. make permanent midnight the ben stiller movie that i've never seen that i remember being somewhat sort of interesting as a as an indie movie back then i feel like a lot of people talked about that for a moment they did the movie belly the movie that stars the hype williams movie the Hype Williams movie starring Nas and DMX and, and T-Boz. I have yep. seen that movie. <laughs> um, Ringmaster, of course, the Jerry Springer movie where he pretty much plays himself. Yes. Uh, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, which was uh, the Jim Jarmusch movie starring Forrest Whitaker that I've still never seen, but people really love this movie. I know uh, Nick Davis, our former guest and friend Nick Davis, uh current friend not former guest and former friend but you know whatever you get it you get it you understand uh loves this movie loves ghost dog one of these days i really got to see it buena vista social club their first oscar nomination oscar nominee yep is a documentary then obviously blair witch in 99 well blair witch and stir of echoes in the same 
a two-month span is pretty interesting. Stir of Echoes was kind of the... I remember Stir of Echoes was sort of seen as the alternate to the sixth sense, yes. weirdly. Yes. And because it kind of, of like them, got buried because of the sixth sense was still making money when it came out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is the plot of Stir of Echoes that Kevin Bacon gets sort of cursed by Ileana Douglas <laughs> to see dead people? I think it's something like that. He doesn't see... She, like, does a spell at their house. I think it's like, that there's a ghost in their actual house, though, but, like, because of But this don't they, thing, like, do a seance and she, like, does some kind of incantation? Yes. I don't know. I could be and, like, to her, I think it's a joke, but, like, it actually works for him. And then, like, right. there's ghosts in his walls or something or in the basement or something. I right. remember it being scary. Yeah, I should watch that again. Why not? Um... The Minus Man is another Artisan movie, which I, I've, I weirdly, Artisan ended up ca- casting Janine Garofalo in a bunch of stuff. She was in Permanent Midnight. She's in The Minus Man. That's the one where Owen Wilson is a serial killer, or is that sure. Clay Pigeons? Or am I thinking of, no, Clay Pigeons is the one where Vince Vaughn's the serial killer. Minus Man is Owen Wilson. Anyway. Anyway. All these things were like these, you know, gregarious leading men were just like no we're gonna make you a serial killer that's fine um Candyman, day of the dead cecil be demented a movie we talked about last week and uh in when talking about Stephen dorf the john waters movie cecil be demented the way of the gun which i absolutely saw in theaters and that was a very um christopher mcquarrie had obviously done the screenplay for the usual suspects mm-hmm. and i think this was one for whatever reason, I'm trying to think of what the through line for this would have been, but this feels like post-Fight Club in the way it was marketed, and I'm not entirely sure what exactly was the through line there, but I remember my roommates at the time, my aggressively heterosexual roommates in college, uh, all were psyched about going to see The Way of the Gun the same way we were all psyched to see Fight Club. And again... I appreciated these movies in my own personal way. But, um, yeah, that's the movie where Ryan Phillippe punches Sarah Silverman in the face and it's weird to watch it again. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Uh, Dr. T and the Women was this year, the same year as Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, the most (laughs) disappointing sequel. Watch it on your VHS while you rewind the movie from the end for new clues. It was so much business with Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2 that didn't need to be business. I saw that one in the theater. I was so excited for that because not only was I super into the Blair Witch Project and also like all of the Blair Witch Project paraphernalia, I never was one of those people who thought it was real. I always feel like it's so strange when I encounter those people who are like, I thought it was real. Like you really did think if it was real, you wouldn't be watching it with a hundred other people. That would be a snuff film. (laughs) Right. Like, even then, I was young, but I wasn't that young. Um, but I was still very interested with all of the the website, the the sci-fi channel special, all of that stuff. It was very creepy. It was very cool. I liked it. So I was very much into the Blair Witch thing. And I was also, at the time, very much into the Paradise Lost movies, which was, I think by that point, there had been two of them uh, put on HBO. And 
the directors of those movies, the films, the documentaries made about the West Memphis Three. And I was very much into like um, the whole the injustice of all of that. I was very internet-y about all of that as well. But those directors then were hired to make Blair Witch 2, and it was a disaster. It was just it was bad. Yeah. Um, and then that same year, uh, Requiem for a Dream, another artisan. Another film, uh, which, Oscar nomination. Which, like, Oscar you nomination. kind of wonder. I mean, obviously, they're coming off Blair Witch, so they would have had a lot more cash flow at the time. But, like, would Artisan have been big enough had Dr. T and the Women been successful? Could they have supported multiple right. Oscar campaigns between Dr. T and the Women and Requiem for a Dream? I still think it's kind of a miracle that they got that nomination yes. for Ellen Burstyn. I agree. I think without the the critical support of that, then it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, and then there's just sort of like scattered other artisan movies throughout the years. Made, which is the uh, John Favreau, Vince Vaughn sort of follow up to Swingers that nobody liked that uh, that uh, Puff Daddy was in. Soul Nova Survivors, Kane, where um, Steve Martin is a dentist and has an affair with Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, I hated that movie. Yeah, it's bad. It's not a good movie. Laura Dern also in that one. Probably in another thankless role. Soul Survivors, I remember, because that was a post-Scream, obviously well post-Scream, but we were still in like the, you know, the faculty era. era. Where yeah. all of the all of the stars of uh, I feel like and this movie poster seems to borrow very heavily from Final Destination. So that must have been around the same time too. But this cast is Dushku, uh, right? Eliza Dishku is the reason why I was so into seeing this movie. Like, this was during the height of the Buffy era. She had also already had her big season on Buffy, which she then followed with Bring It On, and this was sort of the third prong of that. It's a very bad uh, uh, movie. It's whatever. It's, you know, young people being tracked down by ghosts or something like that. Who the hell knows? But, um... Eliza Dushku, Casey Affleck, future Oscar winner Casey Affleck, Wes Bentley, Luke Wilson, and then Melissa Sage Miller, who was one of these sort of uh, actresses of that era who was in a bunch of things. And I always confused her with other actresses who sort of looked like her at the time. But um, yeah, not a good movie, but when I was definitely uh, in the bag for because of Eliza Dushku, for sure. I remember one of their last movies was Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Yes. Yes. Ramala Gary, our girl Ramala Gary. Absolutely. Yeah, Artisan Entertainment was a moment for sure. Yeah, like to talk about like the sense memory of Artisan, like it is absolutely like linked to Blair Witch to even yep. if it's like you're watching something else that you it gives it this air of spookiness and yes. probably because like their logo is a little spooky. Um, yeah, yeah. Or comes off that way that it's like you watch it with Dr. Mm-hmm. T and the women and it's, you know, it's weird. The, the Artisan. The artisan logo fits well with Blair Witch, fits well with Pi, fits well with, you know, a lot of Requiem for a Dream. Soul, yeah, Soul Survivors. Does not seem to vibe with a movie like Dr. T and the Women at all. Dr. T and the Women, I honestly thought that we would have, like, more, like, miscellaneous awards to talk about, but we really don't. Because, like, I thought yeah. it would have been lumped in with some, like... Kate Hudson prizes, but even critics yeah. at that time were smart enough to be like, yeah, no, not that one. <laughs> yeah, we're going to cut that dead weight right away. 
I felt bad for Kate Hudson in this movie. Her plot line in this movie is the most is the plottiest, right? It's she's, you know, she's in love with Liv Tyler. She's got this wedding coming up. What is she going to do? She has at least one scene with Liv Tyler where they sort of like fret about their romantic lives. Oh, and by the way, she's a cheerleader. Oh, by the way, she's a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader, which is like the pinnacle of cheerleading. And there's a scene where you sort of get the sense that it's going to be this sort of like, you know, the business of being a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And I was almost interested in like Altman just doing a movie about that. I feel like that would have been interesting. Um, But again, the movie just continually pulls up short from really investing in anything. And I think it, it hurts more with the Kate Hudson character because there seems to be a lot going on with her and the movie still kind of keeps her mostly at arm's length. And we never really, like what is what is what are her feelings about anything? Like what is I guess maybe that's on Hudson too that she needs to maybe give you a little bit more of a window into. See, I thought Kate Hudson character. was maybe giving more than was on the page. Actually, that's possible. Like yeah. if there was any type of like emotional anchor to whatever this non-character was doing, I thought that she kind of found it a little bit. Even though, like, yeah. you don't necessarily know what's in her head. She at least felt kind of fleshed like a person you don't really know what's going on in most of the characters heads in this movie i think that's a big problem that i had with it i think like in terms of performance style like i was a little bit let down by Liv tyler because i think Liv tyler is somebody i would want to see in a robert altman movie like makes me think of like lily tomlin shelly duvall like those type of she could have been that in Liv tyler for me is an actress who I don't really get on board with until, honestly, like, maybe The Leftovers. I'm trying to think of, like, well, I guess The Strangers, but The Strangers is requiring such specific, you know, stuff from her, and it's so much more of a, you know, it's a horror movie. So, like, it's tough to tell whether I'm so invested in this character because of everything else that's sort of like happening around her. But I do think she's good in the strangers. Um, But I think it's not till the leftovers that I'm just like, Oh, like Liv Tyler's bringing it in this thing. And Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, her career is sort of dotted with, obviously she's in the three Lord of the Rings movies, but like, absolutely. She is in the, least interesting corner of the lord of the rings movies which is once a movie with the exception of fellowship where like she does get to have that chase through the river lands or whatever um if you want him come and claim him all of that but like for the other two movies it's literally just like well now our requisite flashback to aragorn and arwen where they're gonna like dreamily proclaim their love to each other and then she's not gonna (laughs) show up for the rest of the movie and so I don't know if we can put that on Liv, that, like, that story sort of, like, sails Arwen off into the distance or whatever. But, like, Jersey Girl, I didn't like her in, and Incredible Hulk, I didn't like her in, and Armageddon, it's Armageddon, so whatever, but, like, she's pretty bad in that. And she's, like, the <laughs> she's the weak link in Empire Records. I know Empire Records is not, like, a film with a capital F or whatever. But, like, I think there are so many of the cast members in Empire Records who are really delivering. Robert, Renee Zellweger's one. Robin Tunney is one. 
Uh, Rory Cochran is one. And yeah, but like at the end of the day, she gets the shittiest character of Empire Records, right? She just has to be like the hot one or the one that the movie like positions as the hot one that like that era of 90s movie especially is like going to make everybody else more interesting than the one that's supposed to be like the that object is of desire. undeniably true. That is definitely true. But I also feel like even when that movie lets her sort of have her breakdown, it's it it just pales in comparison to what like Robin Tunney and and Zellweger and other people are are doing in that movie. I do love that movie, so like I'm not gonna shit on it too much. But is she the only one in this ensemble that had been in an Altman movie before? Because she's in Cookie's Fortune. Isn't Dern also in Cookie's Fortune? Or Let am me I wrong? See. Again, I have to see Cookie's Fortune. It does seem like the kind of movie that she was in, but I guess she wasn't. Let me see. I mean, Lyle Lovett yeah, was, but not. he doesn't actually show up in Dr. T, so. Now I'm trying to remember her in Cookie's Fortune. It's been a, it's been a minute, y'all, since... Yes, and Cookie's Fortune, incredibly memorable. Um. <laughs> hey, Julianne Moore and Glenn Close. I mean, my God. Uh, yeah, Liv Tyler. Yeah, does uh, again. Basically, gets two scenes to do anything in this. Yeah, but like performers in Robert Altman movies have delivered with two scenes. So, yeah. I just feel bad for most of these actresses. You sign on, you're going to do a Robert Altman movie, you're so excited, and you're just given this, like, really shit material. Poor mm-hmm. Shelley Long is giving her all in this movie. Yeah, and maybe... I don't know, I feel like I've called every character in this movie the most embarrassing character, but, like, this this movie asks Shelley Long to kind of self-flagellate a little bit, um... Yeah, it's a really it's a really sad scene to watch as she like is supposed to be sort of comedically like giving Doctor T a massage and like stripping while she he can't see and preparing to throw herself at him and then like bails out at the last second and hides under his desk and whatnot and it's so gross to her character and I will say my favorite maybe my favorite single moment of the movie is the scene where she, like, is peeking out from behind the wall to, like, eavesdrop on a conversation of his. And just the look on her face, I thought it was just very funny. And then the way she tries to play it off when he catches her doing that. Um, I wanted so much more for Shelley Long in this movie. I was so excited to see... It's, it was fascinating to see this movie made in the year 2000 that had Shelley Long and Farrah Fawcett, these two sort of great tv stars of a you know an older era kind of you know brought back into this movie when they weren't movie stars at this moment and i was excited and you know let down in both ways indeed indeed I just want to know why this movie is still so available. This seems like watching this, I was like, (laughs) this movie has always been like available on Hulu and stuff, at least in recent years that I'm like, who's sitting down to watch this? That's like keeping it on these services that like, uh, what is the demand for this movie? It can't be Robert Altman because like there's a million Robert Altman movies that you've never heard of that are not around. I, 
it's not like this would actually kind of make for an interesting case for like a midnight movie or like people who still do like mystery science theater type of thing yes yeah but i do feel like in terms of its marketability though um especially as a streaming title is i think there is still a demographic for whom richard gear plays a gynecologist as a logline is bulletproof you know what i mean and i think yeah and maybe they really, don't finish like, the movie but they press play it was just like Richard Gere as a gynecologist, like surrounded by women. I'm gonna see that, and it feels. <laughs> I always, um, I've obviously been listening to uh, Blank Check recently. They're doing their Nora Ephron series, which has been so good. And the episode on Michael, the movie where John Travolta plays an angel, a real life angel, and that movie always impressed me as. Uh, reflecting this very specific demographic of women who loved John Travolta at that moment in the 90s in a way that I always feel like is typified by the way that Oprah was always so enthusiastic for John Travolta, famously, Uh with, you know, hollering his name and whatnot. Please welcome my dear friend John Travolta! And I was like, oh, okay, this really sort of, like, crystallizes this idea that, like, John Travolta comes to town and sort of, like, you know, bewitches all these uh, women and sort of, you know, they're they're following him around and dancing with him and whatnot. And I feel like there's the same, that same kind of demo really is in the bag for Richard Gere. Where, like, Sexiest Man Alive Richard Gere, like, Silver Fox Richard Gere, like, that whole kind of persona there. And for whatever reason, like, that's a draw. I think Pretty Women probably did a lot for that. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't dislike Richard Gere. I don't, you know, it's a handsome older gentleman or whatever. But, like, I'm not part of that demo that's sort of, like, swoony for for Gere. I could be on the right day. <laughs> I I'm to also play, famously like, like out on Clooney, so like I was never. I'm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm Clooney doesn't do built, it for me either. Built wrong or whatever. Yeah, maybe we should move on to the IMDb game. Maybe we should, Chris. I Joseph, don't know why I'm making angry, Joseph. Yes. yes, explain the IMDb games to listeners new and old. If I must. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Amazing. That's the IMDb game. Joseph, would you like to give or guess first this week? Well, I'll guess first. Okay. All right, so I originally was going to do something very, very mean um, and give you, instead of Dr. T, I was going to give you Mr. T, but it is impossible, though very funny. Um, So (laughs) instead, I went back into the Robert Altman, uh, you know, menagerie of uh, brilliant, notably Altmanian actresses. And for you, I have one of my favorites, doesn't get discussed enough, Miss Karen Black. Oh, wonderful, Karen Black. Okay. Phenomenal actress. The very first thing I ever saw Karen Black in was House of a Thousand Corpses, which is 
just an awful sentence to have to say, but it is absolutely true. <laughs> um, she's the only good part of that movie, which is terrible. Um, all right, five easy pieces. Five easy pieces. Her Oscar nomination. All right. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. No. Damn. Okay. Problematic casting. But she is good in the movie. I think both of those things are true. Yes. Um, Really like that movie, actually. I've only seen it for the first time pretty recently. Okay. Um, All right. Karen Black, Karen Black, Karen Black. Um, well, oh, obviously, the 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 Altman connection is Nashville. Yes, Nashville. Yes. Okay. Two right guesses, one wrong guess. All right. Oh, well, famously, she's in one of the one of the airport movies where she's the stewardess flying the plane. I have a coffee table book where she's on the cover, uh, and it's called The Stewardess is Flying the Plane. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Back home. That does sound like a cool coffee table I have book. a coffee table that it can go on. Okay, um, what is that called, though? It's like, it's airport 70-something? Am I, am I right? No, you are wrong. So I will give you your years. Your years are 1974 and 2003. Oh my god, is House of a Thousand Corpses on this? I regret to inform you that House of a Thousand Corpses <sighs> is on Karen Black's known for. I hate this. <laughs> god damn it. Karen deserves better. Alright, so 1974, and it's not the airport watch movie. watch that again for Karen. I don't remember anything about it. I think it was just background noise when I watched it. What? House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, just out of curiosity to watch her performance. Yeah. I mean, she's, you know over the top and crazy and wonderful amazing sounds perfect all right 74 1974 what a famous adaptation a famous adaptation yes very famous adaptation is she in the day of the this is also one of those cases that like we actually can't talk about it for our means on this purpose on this podcast but like in terms of disappointments Oh. This absolutely fits the bill. Oh. Literary adaptation. Disappointment. Oh, she's Has in The Great Gatsby, been, isn't she? She is in The Great Gatsby. The yeah. The Pharaoh, uh, Robert Redford, Great Gatsby. Brutal. That's a very interesting known for. I agree. All right. For you, waffling at this point. Okay. All right. <laughs> This is a this is kind of a cursed one, but I love it. Okay. Uh, I went the Shelley Long route, and I'm not going to give you Shelley Long, but I'm going to give you her uh, most famous co-star, who uh, starred with her for many years on television, Ted Danson. Uh, right. There are Mr. two television shows. Two television shows. Good Place. Nope. Okay. Cheers. Yes. Um... <sighs> Okay, which other television show is it going to be? It's I don't want to blow this already, so I'm going to try to figure out what the two movies are first. Mm-hmm. Because there's multiple shows that it could be. King of Television, Ted Danson. Exactly. I had to immediately throw out 
good place like an idiot. Uh, I want that movie because you said it's cursed. I imagine, or like, how much more cursed could it be if this is not there? But it has to be the movie he did with Whoopi where he's in blackface. You are, of course, referring to Made in America, and that is not... Made in America. That is not... He's not blackface in the movie. He was in blackface at a Friars Club roast around the time... I thought it was in the movie. I don't believe so. I know that they are in a relationship in the movie, and of course they were in a relationship in real life. But I think the only time he was in blackface, and maybe our our listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, was at that Friars Club dinner where she told him it would be really funny (laughs) if he would go out in blackface, and he did, and it was not. Um... Yeah, that's called Made in America, but that is not one of the four. So that's two strikes. Okay. So oh, your years... I didn't really think that it was a guess, so, uh, but that's fine. Oh, uh, oh okay. I, because I know that I'm getting one of these. I know I'm getting one of these. Three Men and a Baby. Yes, Three Men and a Baby is one of them. Okay, good. Is Three Men and a Little Lady the other movie? No. All right. Now does this count as two strikes? Now can I give you yours? Yes, it does. It does. It does. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the first year of the television series, which is 1998, and then... It's got to the, be Becker. What's that? It's got to be Becker. It is Becker. Okay. And then the other movie is 1981. Oh, damn. That's... Is that even before Cheers, or is that, like, early it's Cheers? the year before Cheers. You've got to be kidding me. Um, <sighs> He is not a thing at this point. Like, this is... If not his first, it's not his first, well, it might be his first movie, actually. He had done a bunch of smaller TV stuff, but it might be his first movie. Wow, I genuinely... He's not the lead in it, I'll say that. Sure. And we talked about this movie last week. Oh. What did we talk about last week that was 40 years old? Um. Okay. Obviously, it's not a movie with L. Fanning. Um, I want to see how far Stephen down the billing he is in this movie. Fourth bill. Last week when we talked about like the Outsiders. Not really. We didn't really get into um the Francis Ford Coppola movies too much last week. I think I mentioned Peggy Sue got married, but it is not uh, Peggy Sue got married. And my challenge was Kathleen Turner. Is it a Kathleen Turner movie? Maybe. Maybe meaning yes. What was the early 80s? It's not Romancing the Stone. That's like 87. Um, I think it's 86, but yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I don't think it's that much earlier, but is it like it's not Preetzi's honor? Nope. Obviously not War of the Roses. It's not Peggy Sue got married. Nope. Is it Body Heat? It's Body Heat. Body Heat. Kathleen Turner drags William Hurt by the dick in that movie. She does. Uh, I will never let it die. It's amazing. Ted Danson is a. I want to say like. He's a colleague of William Hurt's or something like that, or he's like a shifty attorney or something like yeah, that. Yeah, don't remember him in that movie. I just remember um, how hot that movie is. 
It's super Kathleen hot. Turner's amazing in that movie. Yep. Absolutely amazing. Well done. That was a difficult one. I was like, should I give this one to him? I thought Becker would give you uh, a harder time, but I guess once you get but that But there's year, like so many other shows for Ted Danson. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that that's one. But also, it went for so long and it was a big old success. Like, I guess I'm not super surprised that it's that and not like damages or, you know, any number of other things. Hooray. Bored to death. I love bored to death so much. Anyway. Well, before this tornado whisks us off to Mexico, <laughs> I think that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on the uh, unrealistically long road from Dallas to Mexico. You can also find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, read spelled R-E-I-D. You can find me on Letterboxd, read spelled the exact same way. I am on Twitter at Chris File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please crowd the lobby of our reviews section and demand to see more of us. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be next back next week for more buzz. Bye. Bye. Oh,